God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, uh, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. One of the most powerful anti-war films ever made was a classic, I believe, from the 1930s called All Quiet on the Western Front. And uh, it was a film about uh, World War I and uh, the, uh, uh, oh, the, the senselessness of trench warfare and the needless casualties that happened there. And it was, it's told from the German perspective, which was quite unique at the time. But what's really striking is probably one of the last scenes in the film where this man who had been, you know, started out thinking that the war was going to be over quickly, that it was going to be something glorious and wonderful, uh, after watching all of his friends fall to the left and the right, uh, finally realized the horrors of war. And in this, in this scene, he's in the trench, and he notices just on top of the trench a, a beautiful flower. 
and uh, tired of everything and, and tired of all the struggle, he decides to reach for the flower, taking him just enough outside the trench so that he's shot and killed. And it's a poignant and tragic end to a poignant and tragic film. And he dies because he forgets in a moment the horrors of war. He dies because in a, in a quest for beauty, he loses his sense of what's going on around him. Many times as Christians, we forget the fact that we are in a war. We are. We are in a war. Now, saying that can cause a lot of unease in people today, uh, in part because, you know, if you talk your, to your average radical Muslim cleric, they will tell you that we are in a war, and it's a holy war, and this holy war, this jihad that we're in, should be won by killing of infidels. It should be won by uh, battle and conflict and murder and beheadings, uh, and, and that's how you should advance the kingdom of God from that Islamic perspective. That's certainly how Muhammad advanced uh, Islam in the early days, uh, and it's certainly one of the primary ways that Islam has advanced throughout the centuries, throughout the ages. And so when you say that we as Christians are in a war, it's very easy to begin to have images of jihad or even images of uh, very disturbed people who claim the name of Jesus Christ but have done things such as murder abortionists or picket the graves of fallen soldiers all in the name of Jesus without realizing that that doesn't even begin to reflect the truth of the scriptures and how Jesus commanded us to interact with others. But that does not change the fact that as Christians we are engaged in a war. And there are many, many people who become casualties of war. Uh, and uh, John Paul Jackson, a man who's since gone to the Lord, wrote a book a number of years ago. It's actually a book about uh, spiritual warfare and the like. But he titled the book Needless Casualties of War. And that's really true. Because in this war that we're engaged in as Christians, there are many casualties, but for the most part, they are needless casualties of war. It's easy for us when we're reading this text from Timothy to miss the fact in the common language that is used, to miss the idea that many of the terms that Paul used in this passage here and uses throughout Timothy are actually military terms. And a person reading this in the original Greek would have immediately picked up on a number of the military terms that Paul uses in his discussion with Timothy. And in a sense, you could summarize what Paul is saying to Timothy in this first chapter with one of the later verses where Paul says uh, in this translation, wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. That is a command that Paul is giving to Timothy, but it's also a command that the Scriptures are giving to all of us as Christians. 
that we are not only to remember that we are in a battle, but this battle is not a battle against flesh and blood. This battle is not a battle that will use guns and bombs and missiles and tanks and knives and stones. This battle is a battle that will use spiritual weapons in a conflict that is a spiritual conflict, but every bit as real as a physical conflict. Spiritual weapons like prayer, like obedience, like love, like mercy in order to gain the victory over our spiritual enemy, which is not an enemy of flesh and blood. And so we are called, like Timothy, to wage the good warfare. But even there, we can miss some of what Paul is saying to Timothy. The word translated as wage simply means to be a good soldier, to act as a soldier, to do the things that a soldier would do. And we're going to talk about what a soldier would do, according to Paul, here in just a moment. But do the things a soldier would do in a way that is fitting, in a way that is honorable, in a way that is noble, in a way that is good. You cannot do the warfare that God has called us to in a way that is contrary to the will of God. You cannot achieve God's ends by human means. You can't achieve God's ends by killing somebody, by murdering somebody. You can't achieve God's ends by hate mail and, and hate emails and hate Twitters, tweets, sorry. You can't achieve God's ends in these ways. So Paul says, wage the good warfare. And this word warfare here is not talking about a single isolated battle. It is talking about the campaign. Now, in, in war, you know, you have battles, you have little skirmishes, and you have campaigns. And a campaign is a protracted, a protracted battle, if you will, a, protact, a protracted strategy in order to achieve a certain end. <clears throat> and it is something that lasts for a long time. Most of us, we become casualties of war because we forget that we are in a military, if you will, a spiritual military campaign that will last for our lives. It's not a one-off thing. It's not a shortened thing. It is a campaign in which we are engaged. And sometimes we take a little bit of a furlough. Sometimes we'll get to go on holiday. But even on holiday, we have an enemy who wants to catch us out. So we always have to be careful. We always need to be on an alert because no matter where we are, we are part of this campaign. And so Paul says, wage the good campaign. Engage in the good campaign. And keep on doing it. It's not something you stop doing. It's not something you do for a little while. It is something you continue to do. And if you forget that you are in this, and suddenly let your guard down, suddenly don't fail to discipline yourself appropriately, you will become a needless casualty of war, one of those who ends up shipwrecking their faith, as we'll talk about in in a moment. So we are called to wage the good warfare. Now, it's important to note that this is a command, this is a charge, this is not a suggestion. This is not something that God says, okay, if you feel like doing this, then do it. Paul here is using the military language of a commanding officer speaking to a junior officer. This is a command. When Paul talks about the charge 
that he's been given and the charge that Timothy has been given. He's talking about a military charge, a military commission, a military calling and direction that you must obey. Now we say, how do we wage the good warfare? Well, we learn a number number of things. First of all, Paul says, you wage the good warfare by keeping the charge to which you have been entrusted. Now, we can easily miss something here. Timothy has been given a specific charge. In Timothy's case, Paul said, your charge, your commission, is to remain in Ephesus, put in order the things that I want to be there for that church in Ephesus, which is a very healthy church, a very vibrant church, put those things in order and get those people who are teaching false teachings and who are being legalistic and are focusing on the law, who think they know everything, get those people quiet because they're disturbing the faith of people. So in other words, Paul has been entrusted with a specific charge. And you know what? Paul's charge was different. I I mean, Timothy has been uh, given a specific charge by Paul. Timothy's charge was different than Paul's charge. Paul was charged to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we think that Timothy probably became an an apostle later on, but at that moment that wasn't his charge. Every single one of us has a different charge to which we've been entrusted. Every single one of us has a different focus, has a different area. Part of your charge will be your work. Now we don't often think of work as, as a battle zone. But frankly, if you go to work uh, anywhere in the city, you learn very quickly it's a battle zone. There are people in the marketplace that want to bring you down. There are people that want to undercut you. Uh, There are people who want to steal your job. There are people who want to get ahead on your shoulders. And that's just the Christians that are around you. Not to mention the non-Christians that are there. It is a battle that we're in And your charge that you've been given involves the battle that you're engaged in, the battles in your workplace, advancing God's kingdom there. There's a charge you've been given in your school. Uh, Wherever it is that God has placed you outside the walls of this church, that's part of the charge to which you've been entrusted. Your charge is going to be different than my charge. And we often become casualties when we try to do somebody else's charge. Now, there are a lot of times when I look around and I know that I know that I know that God has called me here. I know that he has placed me here. He's established me here. And he's not called me to go anywhere anytime soon. I know this and I know this and I know this. And this has been confirmed so many times over the last uh, long time. Uh, And it would be very easy for me to think of my friend Kevin back in Ephrata Uh, or my friend Jimmy back in Ephrata, both of whom have healthy, growing, vibrant churches with big car parks and big facilities, brand new. Uh, Well, not Jimmy. Jimmy's meeting in in a cinema, but that's okay. They've got a lot of really cool equipment and a lot of people, you know, it's very easy for a lot of people to volunteer because all they have to do is hop in their little car and travel 15, 20 minutes to the place where where they have to volunteer. And, you know, you can pop in and out very quickly that way. Some people are even less than that. Uh, And it's very easy for me to look and say, boy, I wish I had that commission. I wish I had that charge. 
But if I started to act in that way or tried to seek that charge in this place, you know what I'd become? A needless casualty of war. You have to take the charge God has entrusted to you. Now the other problem is that sometimes we can be side by side with other people who have a different charge. And we can want somebody else to do our charge, to help us with our charge. Now maybe you've got, you know, the Lord's put on you an anointing to teach and you really, really want to teach, but then the Lord has put on, the, on somebody else an anointing to evangelize. And the teacher is like saying to the, the evangelist, hey, why don't you come and help me teach all these people and disciple all these people? And the evangelist is saying, wait a second, I don't have time to, to waste my time teaching people who are already in the church. I've got to win the lost. I've got to get out there and pro- proclaim the gospel. This is what God's put on my heart. And then there can be conflict between the two because then the the teacher starts saying to the evangelist, well, you're not theological, you're not theologically correct. And the evangelist starts saying to the teacher, well, you don't care about all the seven and a half million people around us that are going to hell in a handbasket. And then we become at odds with one another when we've actually been given different commissions. And the challenge is to affirm one another in the commission that God has given us when we know what that is and bless one another and encourage one another and cooperate with one another so that we work together like a team. Because you know, if a military unit in the the natural, if everybody in the military unit, all they had were guns, then how is the communication officer going to communicate with the headquarters to get the the information they need? And what's going to happen if somebody gets shot and there's no medic, medic to care for them? Everybody has a responsibility. Everybody has a commission. Everybody's commission will be slightly different based on who they are and how God has created them and where God has placed them. And we have to affirm one another and embrace one another in those differences of commission without comparing ourselves to one another or judging one another when they don't live up to the commission that God has given us. And that's a key thing. And so that's what Paul first says, Timothy, do the thing that I've entrusted to you. Now, how do we know our commission? Many times, you'll see that later on, uh, right before Paul says, now, in light of the prophecies which you've been given. This is one of the most important functions of the prophetic. We want to hear God for ourselves. I know my commission because God has spoken it into my mind through searching the scriptures, through prayer, through spending time and intimate quiet with him. But then God has also confirmed it by the prophetic word, not just one person or two people, but by at least a half a dozen people over the years. And so that's why prophecy is so important. That's why as a church we embrace this gift of the Holy Spirit and we seek this gift of the Holy Spirit so we can understand more clearly the commission that God has given us. So we can understand more clearly what it is that we need to do. But I want to say this as a caution. Don't ask God for too clear of a word or too much prophecy. Because clarity predicts suffering. Clarity predicts difficulty. If you know that you know that you know that you know that God has called you to do this, expect that it's going to hurt. Because otherwise you'd quit. You know, there's nobody that's that stupid to go through pain and pain and pain and more pain when they don't know that that's what they're supposed to be doing. We'd rather quit and walk away. 
So we each have that commission. We need to seek the prophetic word to engage in that commission. Now, what is the aim? What is the goal? If we're going to wage the good warfare, good warfare needs to have an outcome. Now, it's interesting to think of all the things that Paul could have said here. He could have said the aim of this charge, the aim of this command, the aim of this commission is to make disciples of all nations. That's certainly what Jesus said, and that's certainly the commission given to the body of Christ, to the church. He could have said to us, the aim of this is worship, glorifying God and glorifying God in more glory. He could have said that, and that would have been totally legitimate as well. But notice what he says here about the aim of this charge here. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That is what the goal is. That people will experience love. The love of God flowing in and through us. That we will know the love of God. That we will share the love of God. And love is not good feelings. It's not, you know, uh, happiness. Love is a zealous, self-giving commitment to other people for their benefit. When we see other people benefit, when we see other people come into what God has for them, they are experiencing love and the love of God flowing in and through us. So the aim is love. The goal is love. You know, the Bible says that it's God that saves people. We don't save anybody. We just preach the word, and God uses the word proclaim to lead people to faith. The Bible says we don't heal anybody. God does the healing. God does the saving. God does the opening of eyes. It's God's ministry. It's God's work. And God chooses to work in and through us. And He will do that as long as we are working in love. And so the aim, the goal, the objective is love, but love that's coming from a pure heart, a heart that's been cleansed of sin, a heart that's not holding on to bitterness and resentment and anger uh, and hatred toward others, a pure heart that's focused in love with God. Uh, A good conscience, and this means that you are listening to the Holy Spirit. You're seeking to obey the Holy Spirit quickly. You've not allowed your your conscience to be seared by sin. And anytime you keep doing something you know you're not supposed to do, eventually you won't think that you're not supposed to do it. And your conscience will be seared, and it's no longer reliable if that happens. And a sincere faith. So it's love that's going to flow from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is active believing in God so that you live like you believe. That's what that's all about. Living like you believe. And if you don't have this, you will swerve from the faith. You will swerve from the faith. You'll get involved in all kinds of stupid things. Gosh, I I remember over the years, how many times, I remember 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. And I remember how much time and energy and effort there was in the body of Christ in the United States about that. Oh, get ready, sell all your stuff, go on the mountain, do all this stuff, and do all this stuff. And lo and behold, it might be 2188. You know, maybe you got it wrong. You know, it wasn't 1988, it's 2088. I, I don't know. And then I remember the Y2K bug. Gosh, you remember that? Oh, this is going to usher in the Antichrist. 
We all, you need to sell everything, build a big bunker, store everything away, make sure you got a lot of water and food because the 2000, all the computers are going to stop working, the planes are going to crash, uh, and it's going to be chaos, and that's going to be ripe for the Antichrist to rise up. And so get ready, church. And lo and behold, that's come and gone. And you can go back through history and look at time after time after time where the church, frankly, has wasted a lot of time and energy and money and resources on pursuing vain pursuits and things that were worthless when it came to bringing the kingdom of God into the world. And that's because people stopped pursuing love. They stopped seeking the aim of the charge that they'd been given, the objective, as showing the love of God to a hurting and broken world that stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so you cannot wage the good warfare unless you know that the objective of your warfare is love. Because if the objective of your warfare is to defeat Satan, not only is your warfare dumb, because guess who already defeated Satan on the cross? That would be Jesus. But you will become a needless casualty of war. It can be foolish. If the objective of your warfare is to change the government, it's foolish. If the objective of your warfare is to annihilate Islam, it's foolish. The objective is love. Love that's defined by God, not by human sentiment, and not by the spirit of the age, but defined by God in obedience to God's word. That's the objective. And you cannot wage the good warfare without this objective. And then he goes on and says, okay, how then do we wage the good warfare? Well, we wage it with three primary tools, if you will. The first is holding on to those prophecies holding on to the things that God has said, holding on to the things that God has spoken into our lives. We wage the good warfare by holding on to the promises of God. You know, right now, as, as many of you know, we're talking about redeveloping this building. And uh, do you know that process leading toward redevelopment is now 20 years old? We are living in prophetic words that were given 20 years ago. But actually, if you think about that, one of the things that we've often forgot, we're actually living in prophetic words that were given back in the early 1990s. A little bit further back. Oh, actually, we've been living in prophetic words that some people didn't recognize as prophetic words, though, that came all the way back in the time of Leslie Weatherhead. Actually, we could go back further and further and further, all the way back even to Thomas Goodwin, the founder of, of this church, and say that we're living in the flow of things that were deposited there 376 years ago. Things like the value of the Holy Spirit. Things like the, pen, the, the foundation of God, the Bible is God's Word. All of that is flowing into this time, and Paul is saying, hold on to these things. In my own life, I am living into the flow of things that were spoken over my life back in the 1980s. And the reality of some things that have, were happening in my life back in the 1970s. When I was an infant. No, well, no, I wasn't quite an infant. But I, when I was an infant in Christ. We have to hold on to these things 
Because if you don't hold on to what God has done in your life, how God has led you in your life, what God has spoken in your life, then at the wrong time you will quit and you will give up and you will fail to complete the campaign that God has set you on in your life. And the only thing that's probably worse than becoming a needless casualty of war is getting to the very end of the campaign just before you're about to achieve the breakthrough and all of a sudden deciding it's too hard and you quit. I don't understand everything that God does, but I know how God has spoken and I'm going to hold on to what God has said. And that's why we need the prophetic and we need our quiet time with the Lord. We need to know the Bible because God will not speak to us in a way that's contrary to the Bible as God's Word. We need all of these things so that we can press in on this campaign that the Lord has set us on in our lives. And we need to live in the fulfillment of this. And if you don't have that Word, then start looking for it and asking God for it. But don't take it from just any any person that gives it to you. You take the Word, you write it down, you hold on to it, you pray, you ask the Lord to confirm it in another way. And once you've got three things that confirm what the Lord has said, then you can start saying, okay, this must be something trustworthy from from God because it's three things make a pattern. But you have to hold on to these things. I keep a journal. I actually have a couple of different journals and I've been going through them. I started uh, during the, the sabbatical and I've been going through, I'm back up to about 2005 now, 2006, uh, just going through the things that God has said. You know, and there's some things that I got completely wrong. And I look back and I say, okay, I understand how I got this wrong. This really wasn't God. This was a bad lunch that day. Uh, Or I forgot to eat my Cheerios that morning. Uh, But I've also seen a lot of different things where God has said the same thing time after time after time through a lot of different sources, and I hold on to those things. I hold on to those things. And Paul says you can only wage this good warfare, you can only be a soldier in this long-term campaign leading to the objective, the aim of love, if you allow the Lord to speak to you and you hold on to what he says. And he says... You wage the good warfare by these prophetic words. At the same time, you hold on to your faith. You have faith. Next week, I'm going to preach about the two things that will completely derail you from what God has for you, the promises God has in your life. I'll give you a hint. One of those has to do with faith. We have to hold on to faith. Now, faith is not some pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's not, it's not this whole idea of, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, the little train that could trying to go up the hill. It's not the idea of, uh, uh, of believing something that's not true. Faith is based in reality. It's based in history. It's based in how God has spoken. It's based in what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, in His death and His resurrection. And the resurrection is one of the most clearly established facts of the ancient world of Jesus' time. It's holding on to this reality and saying, okay, because I know the truth, because I know God, then I will live, I will step out, I will do what God has called me to do. Faith will always lead to obedience. If you're not obeying, you don't have faith. And this is a real problem sometimes. 
Because we all will obey once it's easy, but faith calls us to obey when it gets really difficult. What happens when all your friends are doing something and you risk exposure as a Christian and and they're going to persecute you or laugh at you or shame you because you're following Jesus and they're not and you have to take a stand? That's when your faith is tested. That's when your faith is demonstrated. Faith is not demonstrated in the first two weeks or two years or two, two months of your walk with Jesus. Faith is demonstrated as you walk with Jesus year after 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 year. There are some things in life and in this world that God wants to achieve through His soldiers that God knows will take 10, 15, 20 years of faithfulness. And these things are worth it. They're worth it. And these things take strength. They take courage. They take perseverance. You know, if you're a man, it takes real manhood to do these things. If you're a woman, it takes real womanhood to do these things. But sometimes I I single out the men not because men are more important than women, not because they're better than women, but because men, we have a greater tendency to think that this whole faith thing is for women. It's for women and children and not for men. Uh, And that's because we get caught up in the outward uh, the, the outwardness of things. We get caught up in, you know, singing a chorus and seeing some other guy, you know, holding his hands and talking about being in love with Jesus. Now, even with the whole rise of homosexuality and things in our society, uh, it's still a real challenge for a lot of us men to say, oh yeah, Jesus, I love you. And if we get into this context too, where, where there's intimacy and, and there's that kind of thing that that you see in a lot of contexts, you know, where, where almost you, you feel like you want to say, oh, Jesus, I love you, kissy, kissy, kissy. We men don't do that. You know, if Russell came up to me after the service today and said, oh, Rod, I love you, let me give you a big kiss, I'd say no. You know, you kiss me, I'm going to lay hands on you. And we don't do that as men. By the way, I don't think Jesus does that with us either. You know, the hug of Jesus is not a, a sissified, sexualized hug from one man to another. The hug of Jesus is a real man's hug to another real brother uh, who he has made a son of God. That's true with women too. But men, we need to understand this. Because this is a battle. It's for men. And it's time for us to rise up and be men in this battle. Because there are a lot of men, women, and children in this world around us that depend on us. That depend on us. Anyway, that's my side excursus on men. So Paul says you, you, to Timothy, you can't wage this good warfare unless you hold on to your faith. And you keep living in faith, even when it's dark, even when it's difficult. And there are challenging times. You know, it's very challenging if God puts you into a context where uh, maybe he's, he's called you to, to follow a group of elders or follow a leader to support that leader in his or her ministry, and you see something you don't like in the leader, or maybe the leader starts doing things that you don't like, you don't care about, and, and you say, not sins, I'm not talking about sin issues, 
which need to be addressed. But, you know, maybe it's a difference of opinion or a difference of style or whatever, and he puts you in that context, and you start to say, you know, I, I don't know if I want to keep, keep with this. It takes faith to do it. It takes faith to obey the commanding officers that God puts you in your life. But let me tell you, in the army, including God's army, you don't advance to officerhood unless you learn how to take commands first. And that's why we have to hold on to faith. Hold on to faith and also to a clear, a good conscience. The idea here is a conscience that's attuned to the Spirit of God, that is useful, that is effective. If we continue in persistent disobedience, our conscience will become useless. But the good news here is, if you have been in sin, if you have disobeyed, you, all you need to do is repent. And that's saying, God, I confess that what I did was wrong, and I turn away from it, I don't want it, and I ask you to cleanse me and heal me so that I can walk in obedience. And that always works because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Always works. So we have to have a clear conscience and be sure that we do not do things that violate that conscience. And sometimes we can, we can be in situations where we're not sure. If you're not sure, take time to pause. Take time to pause. One of the things that we like to do as elders, uh, your group of elders here, of which I'm one, is when we make decisions, we want to be as united as possible in those decisions. And if somebody has a, a deep crisis of conscience where they're saying, I don't think I, I can go with that decision, then we wait. We give God time. Because sometimes the Holy Spirit shows us where we're wrong. Sometimes the Holy Spirit shows the other person where, where he or she is wrong. Sometimes uh, the Holy Spirit corrects us all. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is saying, not saying don't do this. He's saying, not quite yet. Now is the time. And so we listen together because we want to honor the conscience that God has put in us. And sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. Sometimes we see it the wrong way, and once we see it the right way, the, the conscience issue is gone. But we respect and honor that, and we have to do that ourselves because we have to hold on. We have to embrace this clear conscience. conscience. And so if you have your faith and your clear conscience the prophecies so that you know what your commission is, you're engaging in them, the objective right in your mind that the goal is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and, and a, a good faith. If you know those things, then you live your life, you are waging the good warfare. Because at the end of the day, it's just about living where God has called you to live, as God has called you to live, doing the things that God has called you to do. But there is a challenge. You can easily start to swerve from your faith and you can shipwreck your faith. Paul mentions here Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Hymenaeus was a guy who was uh, promoting a lot of endless gene genealogies and a focus on the law and how many angels could dance on the head of the pin, that, that kind of thing, those senseless discussions. And a lot of people were being led astray into that and getting caught up into that and their faith was going to the rocks. Alexander, the coppersmith, was somebody 
who for whatever reason probably started to follow Paul in Ephesus, but then started to oppose Paul. He started to rise up against Paul, and he actually did a lot of harm in the end to the body of Christ there in Ephesus because of his opposition and because of what he had done. And Paul says they have shipwrecked their faith because they lost the sense of the faith. They, lost, they, they weren't listening to their conscience. Uh, they weren't living by faith. They weren't following the prophecies, and they weren't trying to live in love, and consequently, they got shipwrecked. And you can shipwreck your faith. You can become a needless casualty of war. You can be like the Costa Concordia who gets too enamored with something, maybe trying to show off or impress somebody else, and all of a sudden, before you know it, you're on your rocks, your ship is sunk, and that's it. And I've seen that happen to people. And many times when somebody's faith is shipwrecked, that's it. They become functionally useless in the body of Christ for the rest of their lives. Now, occasionally, they will repent, and God will refloat the ship, repair the ship, and get it on course again. But many times, by the time you swerve to the point where you've shipwrecked your faith, there's almost no turning back. Not because God is not great and merciful, but simply because we stop paying attention. And that's why Paul says, I'm handing them over to Satan. In those moments when we swerve out of that, when we shipwreck our faith, we come out of that protection that we need in this war and we become victims of satanic attack in our lives. And I've seen this time after time after time in people's lives. And God allows this to happen so that people will learn not to blaspheme. And the blaspheme here is just not saying, you know, using God's name in vain. Blasphemy is doing something, actively doing something that you know is contrary to the gospel, contrary to the word of God, contrary to God's honor. And sometimes the only way to learn that is through suffering. So this is God's call on our life, that we would wage the good warfare, holding our faith, holding our good conscience, knowing what God has said to us, accepting the commission that God has given us, Remembering that our goal is love, the aim is love, that we would love, that we would experience love, that we would show God's love to a hurting, broken world around us, beginning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The aim, the objective is love, knowing that as the body of Christ moves forth in love, the kingdom of God advances, the sick are healed, the dead are raised, people come to faith in Jesus Christ, lives are changed and transformed, then God receives all the glory and the honor. This is God's challenge to you. This is God's commission to you. The question for you, will you take up the challenge? Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We honor you. And Father, I pray against any spirit of fear that this talk of warfare and stuff might generate. Lord, we reject every notion of your warfare by violence, by hatred, by anger, by antagonism, by malice, uh, by anything that is contrary to the rule of love. We reject it fully and freely. 
We reject the notion of a violent jihad that is needed to bring in your kingdom. We reject the notion that your kingdom would be advanced by violence in any way, shape, or form. We reject the notion that this warfare is something that is focused on people, not on the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we accept that this warfare language describes the reality of what we're engaged in, while at the same time points us to your completely alternative way of engagement through love, through faith, through goodness, through self-control, through the fulfillment of your commission to show the love of Jesus everywhere around us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and encourage us and strengthen us. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we go into worship, I want to do...